The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Last year, in 2022, the Nobel Prize Committee awarded their Nobel in Literature to French author Annie Ernaux, quote, for the courage and clinical acuity with which she uncovers the roots, estrangements, and collective restraints of personal memory, end quote. And so the small band of loyal readers swells with pride and in number as new readers scramble to discover what has made Annie Ernaux so compelling. New readers in English are helped along by the translations, which strive to capture this clinical acuity while successfully navigating the roots and estrangements and restraints of personal memory. We'll talk to one of those translators, Alison Strayer, about her experience with Annie Ernaux and her works today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you so much for joining me today. I got a nice email the other day asking how to contribute to the show. Well, there are a couple of ways. You can sign up at patreon.com literature for a small monthly contribution, or you can make a one-time donation at historyofliterature.com donate. As always, my thanks to all of our supporters. You are saints and angels in my eyes. Big show today, we will have as our dessert a choice for my last book from Bob Blaisdell, who was here for a discussion of Chekhov becoming Chekhov, the miraculous two-year period in Chekhov's life when he went from being virtually unknown to being praised by Leo Tolstoy, thanks to his short stories he was publishing while also working as a physician. Will Bob choose one of Chekhov's works as the last book he will ever read? We will see. And for our main course, we have the translator of last year's Nobel Prize winner, and she is delightful. Canadian, which is kind of perfect for translators of French and English. That's a great place to be from. Although she's lived in Paris for many years, we will get into all of that with her. Also, we'll get into what Annie Ernaux is about, her books and her prose. But let me give you a few biographical facts. Annie Ernaux was born in 1940, which makes her 82 now, a couple of years younger than Joyce Carol Oates, if you're looking for a comparison. She was born in Normandy, the daughter of Blanche and Alphonse, who operated a cafe and grocery in a working-class part of town. As a 20-year-old, she worked in London as an au pair. After that, she taught school and got a master's degree in literature at the age of 31. Three years later, she published her first book, an autobiographical novel. Autobiography and fiction based on it is central to understanding the works of Annie Ernaux. Her books are about that experience she had in London, about the death of her mother, about the lives of her parents, her teenage years, an abortion, Alzheimer's, breast cancer, and so on. A breakthrough novel, The Years in 2008, was hugely successful with critics. That was the first time she wrote about herself in the third person. That book covers the decades from post-World War II through the early 2000s. And her books about her affairs have been popular as well, a passionate affair she had with an Eastern European 
married man in Simple Passion, and in the book Getting Lost, a passionate and secret love affair she had with a Russian diplomat. After she won the Nobel Prize, French President Macron uh, praised her as the voice, quote, of women's freedom and the forgotten of the century, end quote. For 50 years, he said, she's been writing the novel of the collective and intimate memory of the country. Ernaud said that 60 years earlier, in a diary, she wrote a single sentence that represents all the clarity and violence of her task as a novelist. Quote, I will write to avenge my people. End quote. She went into literature, she said, as the thing of greatest value, even a way of life that led her to project herself into the novels of Flaubert or Virginia Woolf and literally live them out. Literature was a sort of continent which I unconsciously set in opposition to my social environment, she said. She was assisted by her mother, who read novels while working in her shop, and who instilled in young Ani a love for reading as well. Don Quixote, Gulliver's Travels, Jane Eyre, The Tales of Grimm and Anderson, David Copperfield, Gone with the Wind, Les Miserables, The Grapes of Wrath, Nausea, and The Stranger. Those were her inspirations and her guides. We will hear from her translator, Alison Strayer, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Allison Strayer, who is a Canadian-born writer and translator whose work has won many awards for literature and for translations. She's also translated several works by last year's winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, French writer Annie Ernaux, including her novel The Years, which was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, and Getting Lost, which tells the story of the year Ernaux had a passionate and secret love affair with a Russian diplomat. Alison Strayer, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much, Jack. 
So it seems like Canada is a great place to grow up for someone who becomes a translator of uh, French into English. Were you bilingual when you were growing up there? No, I come from the uh, Canadian prairies. And at the time, we didn't learn French in school. Oh, My family moved east to Ottawa, and you learn French in, in school there. So I started learning very basic French when I was about 10 and more intensively in uh, high school when I was 14, 15. Mm. And when did you move to Paris? Oh, that was a long time after. Uh, 2001. Oh, right. Okay. So what motivated that move? Well, I only visited Paris when I was, for the first time when I was quite old, 39, Mm. because I was going to visit a friend who just had a baby and I fell in love with Paris and said I must find a way of staying here. So I, I, well, I visited, I took my translation work and I visited a few times and then I met my husband and I moved in 2001 to live with him and we got married in 2002. Hmm. And your husband is from Paris? Yes, he is. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you were translating before you made the move. Is that right? Oh, a long time before. Yes. Uh I did my university in uh, French and Quebec literature And then I became a a teacher of ESL, but could see after about five years of that, that's not what I always wanted to do. So I started doing translation in 1987. Mm. And that was lucky because I I had several friends in the film business, and there were a lot of films being developed, scripts being developed in Montreal, in Quebec, uh, in Canada at the time. And so that's how I started translating scripts for filmmakers. Oh, interesting. So they were being translated before the films were being made? Yes, because that was the stage in their development. Because it's ostensibly a bilingual country, the films were being developed in English and French, and they would have to be sent to Telefilm Canada for reading. Oh, uh uh-huh. They had to be available in both languages. But the great majority of them were not produced. There was a development segment, and then there was a production segment, and I was uh, part of the development Right. So were you basically doing this for money? This was a a profession? Yes, I was. Uh, It wasn't a lot of money, but I was taking everything I could so I could learn to translate because I wasn't trained. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of press releases and technical books and not much literature for a long time. Right. Okay. So when you first read the works of Ani Erno, were you reading them in French or English? The first book I read was Passion Simple, and uh, that was uh, in French in 1992. It was given to me as part of a film script I was editing because the filmmaker said he wanted his film to have the feel of that book of Annie Elnaud's uh, Passion. Oh, interesting. What did he mean by that? I think it's very direct. The prose is very, you know, not a lot of long sentences, uh, mm. sometimes telegraphic. There's not much analysis. There's a lot of description of everyday life. And I guess he wanted something that wasn't flowery, that was just sort of telling it like it was. Mm-hmm. This, this illicit affair. It's the same story as getting lost. Oh, right. Right. About the Russian diplomat. Mm-hmm. Yes. And did it work? I mean, did was that a good way of signaling to you what he wanted out of the script? 
Yes, it was. I'm not sure it was successful. And other screenwriters I've worked with also, they didn't necessarily cite Annie O'Neill, but they, they wanted the same kind of telegraphic effect, showing more than telling an unsentimental treatment of, uh, of very fraught emotional situations. Right. It's so interesting that they use books for that instead of asking you to watch a film. Yes. Well, that, that was the right way to do it with me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So what was your impression? Were you able to read it sort of for pleasure or, or take it in as a novel as well? Or were you too busy focused on the project to kind of concentrate on the novel and what it was doing and what it was about and so on? Oh, of course. I'm, I'm much more, first of all, uh, a reader. So I, I was intrigued by the book and I was I was very struck by the spareness uh, of the prose mm. and I related to the story and, and the complications of the story and the apparent simplicity of the prose. I was very interested in by I said, you know, how did she do that? How did she do that? And I and quite often with her books that I read afterwards of Annie Elnose, I would always be saying, How did she do that? Mm. Did you think this woman is going to win the Nobel Prize someday? Was that something you could foresee from just reading the first book? Or was that something, did you ever think that before it happened? I mean, it was much talked about, so I guess you probably did at some point. But was that something you could see early on? No, I, I really didn't think about prizes at all yeah. uh, till what, 20, 30 years later, because when yeah. the years did get a prize, that was my first book of hers I translated, and I thought, and it was uh, nominated for several prizes. And then... Uh, I started thinking about it when she was often cited. Mm. Mm-hmm. Of course, I always thought that she was a very humanitarian writer with a huge uh, scope that would appeal to a, a wide range of readers. So right. I guess I just didn't think in terms of prizes. <laughs> right. And did you approach a publisher and offer to translate her works or did someone approach you or how did that come about? In 2003, when uh, Sepeld, which became Getting Lost, first came out, I did approach a publisher about translating it, but there wasn't any interest. And then when I finally did translate, and you'll know, it was the years, and it was for seven stories, Mm. and I had already translated several books for them, so I was already working with them. Right. So uh, uh, what a dream come true. (laughs) Oh, okay. So that was going to be my next question. Did you have any concerns about it? Or did you think this is a perfect fit for me? I, I know I can get this done. I know what needs to be done. And it'll be a, an easy project to translate. Oh, no. No, I knew it wasn't going to be easy. It was, it's one of the <laughs> I had read. It came out in um, as Les Années in 2008. And I'd read it already in French. And no, I knew it was going to be a huge challenge. But I dove in. It was it really was a dream come true. I, mm. I never expected I would ever translate a book by Anil No. So it was really, I was very grateful for the opportunity. But it took a while. <laughs> right. So what is the years about? Mm-hmm. It is a collective autobiography, that's what she calls it, that takes place over six decades, uh, which coincide with Annie Elnaud's life until then. So she's born in 1940, and I think the last year, it closes in 2006, and she's a grandmother. And it's a portrait of generations, certainly of France, and to some degree the rest of the world, world history, 
from the very personal about, you know, what her family is buying at the grocery store to world events. And there's a lot of detail about each period, like products and trends and music and movies and posters and and things that completely disappear and things that come back. So it's a panorama of history. So it's there is an eye in the book. Uh, a narrator, but the I narrator we are to understand is a we. Mm. And that stands for an individual at different periods or more of a community? Community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Generation. Yeah. Right. And how does that compare with getting lost? Oh, it's completely different. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like it. Yeah. I am sure that uh, Annie Elnoah had the years in mind really for, for decades. Mm. It's a big book that she was collecting ideas for and trying to find a form for it. Whereas Getting Lost is based on a diary she wrote for two years and a bit, during which time she was involved with a Soviet cultural attaché with who was in Paris. And who was immediately recalled to the Soviet Union when, well, when the wall fell in 89. And it was handwritten, and then she transcribed it, didn't change anything, and put those notebooks away for about six years, and then took them out again and realized that this could be a book in itself. Mm, Right. So I read a New York Times review who wrote this about getting lost. Uh, quote, the almost primitive directness of her voice is bracing. It's as if she's carving each sentence onto the surface of a table with a knife, end quote. And it, it occurred to me, the reviewer here is talking about Ani or no, but your work as a translator is essential to the reviewers forming a judgment like that about the prose. And I'm wondering if when you read or hear a description of something that you know that you translated, What's your reaction? Do you do you think, oh, yes, good, that's what it's like in French, too, and I'm glad that I captured that? Or do you think, uh-oh, I'm not sure that that's what it's like in French. Maybe I inserted uh, a different tone there without intending to or sharpened the English too much? Or do you think, why are they leaving out the, the role of the translator here and, and not giving the credit to the person who's actually putting together the prose in English that's being read? Or how do you how do you deal with criticism of a book that you've translated where they're discussing something like the prose? Uh, well, for instance, in that uh, description, I love the words they've used, the carving and bracing and yeah. the allusion to a knife, which she did an interview once that was that would translate as writing sharp as a knife. So that's the definitely the effect of her prose in French. And I really follow. I really use the original as a guide for a long, long time. I'm always looking back at the original. And I try to use words that, uh, in English, that reflect the same rhythm uh, that are no fancier or rarer than the ones in French. Right. And especially since that was a diary, it was an exercise in going back and back and back and making sure that I'd uh, not added any little flourishes. Mm, Yeah. I guess you do have the advantage that it's, we're not too far away time-wise, that, you know, the languages have kind of developed in parallel to some extent. It's not as if you're trying to go back to 1850 or something. Yeah, you're quite right. (laughs) Is there anything that you find difficult or impossible to properly convey? Oh, lots. I I wish I had a list of examples, but many times I will 
go over a sentence and over and over and over and over a day, partly because of the, the differences in the structure of French as compared to English, the, the syntax, this mm. word. And I try to keep the same word order, too, but can't always. Mm -hmm. And sometimes she's very, very specific. For example, when she's describing things spatially, like an intersection or a room. In the last book I translated, a shopping center, the design of the shopping center. And it's strangely difficult sometimes to translate those because you really have to switch the word order around in English to make it more readily understandable and a kind of specificity that yeah. is, can be hard, quite a challenge. But sometimes if I want to make sure that I have grasped an idea, I will write to Annie know and I'll say, no, this is what I understand. And is that what you intended? And she'll write me back. Okay. Well, I want to ask more questions about that, but let's take a quick break and then come back with Alison Strayer. Okay, Allison. So I asked you to identify some of the elements that you found more difficult to convey than others. And I guess what I was expecting was maybe something that would be about love or some kind of feeling or something within a mental process or dealing with the heart, so to speak. And your example was more about something very part of the physical world and space and dealing with structures and moving through those and so forth. And our, um, French and English close enough that you feel like you can easily capture some of the more difficult emotions or the contours of a relationship and the feelings that are associated with that and so on? Uh, yes, to me, they're close enough. It is a bit different, but the important thing is to really, I think, sees what is going on and what the intention is in the image. Mm. And that I think I generally grasp. Mm. Although, if I look through my translation notes, I'm sure I could probably find many examples. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let me ask you what it's like to be inside the world of Annie Arnoux. You, you must have spent more time kind of on a word-by-word -word basis than just about anyone. What's your general sense when the new book comes in and, and you are asked to spend this kind of time with it? What do you know that you're in for? Oh, uh, an adventure, <laughs> but uh, I'm fascinated by her world and her vision and her voice. And I'm always learning something and sort of disappearing into it for a while, too. What I get most of all is a voice. You know, it's a voice that's familiar mm -hmm. and a way of perceiving things. And as far as being in her world, it, it with every book, it's really like being, well, it's, it is, it's being inside a, another person's consciousness. There are usually scenes that I have already seen and maybe in a different form in another book. And mm. so I am developing a memory. You replicate a process of development of getting to know someone. You say, oh, I remember that scene and I remember that uh, expression. And it's an exploration into uh, it's knowing not so much a person, but a writing, a consciousness a little bit more each time. Yeah. It's 
it's amazing. It's really a wonderful profession. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was living in Italy and all the movies were being dubbed into Italian, and I had heard that there were actors who were always called upon to do, you know, the latest Cary Grant movie or the latest Audrey Hepburn movie or something, and that there had been instances where they developed a kind of identity crisis where they would start to lose track of who they were and kind of blend into the character of their actor that they were constantly being asked to portray. And it sounds like a translator could be in danger of kind of a similar thing where you're, if you're doing multiple books by the same person and you start to feel like these are maybe memories that you have, which you have from your experience translating, but it could also kind of blur the lines between individuals where the writer ends and the translator begins. It's not not a give and take, but a lot of her observations and descriptions and memories correspond a little bit with mine. And sometimes they excavate things that I've forgotten or mm. things that I have observed. And her writing also expands my perceptions. The, the book, A Girl's Story, I often think of that book. I might have read something or dreamt something or seen something, that, seen a place that was mentioned in the book. And that book especially feeds back and kind of reinvented constantly yeah. uh, my mind. Right. Okay, so what's your process like? Do you read the book straight through first before you even start thinking about translating? Or do you start with the very first word thinking about what it's going to sound like in English? I never read the books first unless, well, I, I don't do it deliberately. I may have already done them, read them in French, but no, I, I just, I want to start fresh. And often the uh, first impression of a sentence gives you something. Mm. It might awaken the right instinct, the right translation. The raw, you know, the first look at the text often brings up aspects that are useful in the eventual uh, translation. Oh, that's interesting. So you're going through it like a reader would experience it. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You've, got, you've always got something that pulls you on. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. And then you mentioned her involvement with the process. You are able to write her letters and she'll respond to those. Oh, yes. Immediately. I write her emails and I uh, do everything I can to answer my own questions right. first. Right. There's a lot of good resources online, uh, forums and things like that, where you can discuss words with other translators. And so I end up with a list of words a couple of times, maybe over the course of a, a translation, and I send them to her and she she sends them right back. And does she speak English? I don't know. <laughs> I think she probably does or has a, has a, certainly understands it, but she says every time that she's not an English specialist. And so she would never judge the, the, the final product. She trusts the editors. Right. And probably a couple of Anglophone friends too. So she doesn't respond and say, oh, the, clearly the word should be X and propose something. You're sort of saying, okay, I'm wondering about this phrase, and then you maybe sort of suggest a couple of different directions it could go in? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you explain to her, this one would feel more like X, and this other one would feel more like Y, and which were you trying to convey when you wrote the phrase? Yeah, exactly. Mm, yes. It's interesting. And have you ever met her? Oh, yes. Yes, we, we, see, we did a reading together. That's the first time I met her in... 
2018 at Shakespeare and Company, and then we met four or five days of the Man Booker uh, events before the the prize ceremony, and we did readings. She would read in French, and I read the same passage in English. I saw her in New York last fall. We did a radio broadcast together. Right. <laughs> it's so interesting. Is that what is that like for you? I mean, do you feel anxious about it? Or is it comfortable at this point? Oh, I, I guess the first time I was I was anxious, but she's a very uh, approachable, kind person. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I feel like this should be a story. Have you ever thought about writing a book about being a translator? And uh, I mean, you could take it in a bunch of different directions, but uh, I'm sort of picturing all of these Hitchcockian plots about the translator, <laughs> about the way that the identities could be uh, uh, interwoven here, or uh, you could have uh, an adventure together. Yes. Well, I have <laughs> I've written things where I have been translating, and but... Um, it really is like swimming a bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> the, the author's voice is a river, and you dive into it, and you you sort of create a current, and um, you take your cues from the from the river and you know, try to swim in it. Yeah. Now, you may be uh, too humble to really answer this question, but I did read in the Guardian newspaper that was talking about Annie Ernaux and saying, while her work has been well-known and well-received in France since the 1970s, it is only since around 2019, when the years was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, that she's made a big impact on the Anglophone world. And I think that was your translation of it, I'm wondering if you feel like you've contributed to her impact on the Anglophone world. You must feel that way. I'm wondering if you even helped her win the Nobel. Well, uh, well, no. <laughs> it's that that's for her whole body of work in all languages. But I would would love to think that that I've contributed to uh, her work becoming better known. I think that the, we know the years was a tour de force, you know. Yeah, in- right. And she was known before that uh, in English. Mm. She was translated by Tanya Leslie in, uh, I guess, the 80s. And one very punchy book after another, uh, A Man's Place, A Woman's Story, Shame, uh, I Remain in Darkness, uh, Happening. Um, Those are wonderful translations. So we're not going to hear from you someday that that the real secret behind the prize is your translations and that you never got the credit and actually your name should be the one next to the the words Nobel laureate. Oh, oh no. <laughs> the Nobel is for the, the author's entire work and their their life and but I am very very happy and yeah. want to be present. Yeah. Did it change anything for you? Well, I uh I feel more hopeful for women's rights and mm-hmm. And women's writing. I'm extremely happy for Annie. But it didn't, uh, you didn't suddenly, your phone wasn't ringing off the hook asking you for translation work or anything like that? Well, I'm doing more translations of her books, Mm. Mm -hmm. perhaps more quickly than I would have done them. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be three in two years. Right, right. Sooner, rather. Mm -hmm. They want to bring them out quickly because this is suddenly a lot of attention is being paid to her because of the Nobel Prize. Yes, and to make sure, you know, all her work is available in English. It, it's not quick, quick. I've been given plenty of time to do the work. Uh, and, oh, well, I get asked 
uh, to do interviews. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the life-changing experience of appearing on the History of Literature podcast. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, you mentioned before that you felt like you were seeing things in a slightly different way or the memories that you had would be affected by the things you had read in her works. Could you expand on that a little bit? Has it changed you as a person, do you think, or in the things you observe or the way you think about anything in particular? changed my understanding, for example, of the way that memory works. Mm. I sort of, you know, had passive knowledge of it. But in the years, images would pop up in the writing. And they seem to be arbitrary. But that's the way memory is. Mm. The years really was a blueprint of the way that memory works for me. And she talks about the palimpsest sensation of feeling sometimes that she's in several times at once but they're all sort of parallel it's all one on top of the other like superimposed remembering the same type of moment but at five different times I mean that's fascinating to me just how conscious she is of memory and the way the mind works and how faulty memory is too mm. and in her writing she works very hard I think at finding a form that will help her to show as specifically as possible Things like the way memory works, the way trauma kind of buries things and brings others up. Her work on form is always of, of interest to me. Mm. It's something I became more and more aware of the more books I did. And it's really one of my favorite parts of you know what I discover when I translate her books. Mm. We've been talking about Ani Ernaux, Nobel Prize winner. Our guest today has been her translator, Alison Strayer. Alison Strayer, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jack. Finally today, a little treat for you, Bob Blaisdell, author of Chekhov Becoming Chekhov, chooses his last book. Okay, we're joined now by Professor Bob Blaisdell, expert in Tolstoy and Chekhov. Professor Blaisdell, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either name a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. And I'm going to tell the listeners who might not have heard the full-length interview with you that you had told us during that interview that you've read Anna Karenina something like 25 times in the English translation and three or four times in the original Russian version. You learned Russian just to read Anna Karenina. So is I'm curious if Anna Karenina is going to be your choice here. Uh, I'm afraid so. Yes. yes. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> what are you hoping to get from Anna Karenina as your final book to read? I don't know what I'll be getting on that final time, mm -hmm. but it's, so far it's, it's worked. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it works for everything else. Times. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, the way the way that that you know many people in the 19th century they only read the Bible, and that was that was their mm. book. The mm -hmm. book. Uh, right. This I think must be like that. That it is that it is my Bible. There's something fresh and new 
each time, or there's just the great pleasure of, of renewal, reading it one more time. Yeah. And maybe for the first 20 times that I read it, I thought, maybe this time she won't die. <laughs> and, and, that was a mystery, and that was a mystery to me, too. It's like, I know the train is coming. Yeah. But still, I had the feeling and the fear and dread that it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Right. Well, the train comes for all of us. So it's made me think of like a last meal. You know, I'm not going to select beluga caviar or something I've never had, even though it might be the greatest thing in the world. I'd probably take, you know, a good pizza or something that I, the tried and true. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's where, that's where I'll go. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an excellent choice. Professor Bob Blaisdell, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. Okay, there we go. 30 times with Anna Karenina and still going back for more. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Allison Strayer and Bob Blaisdell. We'll be back next time with a look at one of the 20th century's greatest observers and one of its leading intellectuals, Hannah Arendt. Her biographer, Samantha Rose Hill, will join us. And we have plenty of other great episodes in the works, including another visit from Emma Smith, Shakespeare expert, and a discussion of Camus for all you French literature fans, and a look at the writers of Northern Ireland. We're doing some good hopping around, aren't we? Some good traveling. Getting ready for the spring and summer, I suppose. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.